Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 355, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. Today, we have another special guest that joins the pod, Eduardo Bersinho, a Stanford-trained mindset expert who's been working to transform the narrative that we are born with inherent abilities that we cannot change. In other words, a fixed mindset. As co-founder of Mindset Works with Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck, Eduardo says the key to success is not simply effort, focus, or resilience, but the growth mindset that creates them. Eduardo is a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in developing cultures of learning and high performance. Earlier in his career, he was the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works, the first company to offer growth mindset development services. Previously, he was a venture capital investor with the Sprout Group. His TED Talk, How to Get Better at the Things You Care About, and his prior TEDx talk, The Power of Belief, have been viewed more than 9 million times. Eduardo and I dive into approaching every conversation with an open mind, a sense of curiosity, and testing our assumptions, our obsession with labels and how it constrains our potential, strategies for shifting our mindset spectrum from fixed to growth-oriented, how to objectively open our minds to new or opposing thoughts, the absence of mindset education in our school system and its implications, performing self-assessments to understand our progress toward a growth mindset, the advantages of openly addressing our vulnerabilities, the benefits and growth opportunities behind systems thinking, and finally, our biological predisposition for survival rather than happiness or thriving. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. 
I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. I love the fact that this is your world, this fixed and, and growth mindset piece, as I was saying before we hit record here. I'm curious, how did you get into the world of mindset? Because I always say what we see through the lenses that we wear is like these glasses that I have on builds our reality and our ability to be successful, to be happy, to be positive, to create greater growth in our life. So how did you come to that realization? And then two, say, you want to know what? The world needs this. The world needs my perspective, needs the science, needs this education. What was that igniter for you? Well, the igniter to change my path was I got physically sick with a repetitive strain injury called myofascial pain syndrome. I had been working a few years in investment banking and then venture capital. And it was very like interesting work. But at the end, I realized, you know, for a number of reasons that I can talk about later, I, I all this pressure I was putting on myself to prove rather than improve and to act like a know-it-all to pretend like I had all the answers and was sure of myself. I created pressure for myself. I got sick and I realized I became at risk of becoming disabled and not being able to actually work. And I realized, okay, how, if I, if I have my hands now, you know, how can I make the best use of it? And I, I wanted to change careers. So I went to grad school and over there I, be, I became interested in social entrepreneurship to do something that I thought could make an impact on other people. And I was introduced to, to Stanford professor Carol Dweck. That's where I was. And I learned about her work. I read, read her book, Mindset. That's how I learned about growth mindset and fixed mindset, just having conversations with her because she was looking for somebody with a business background to help you know, bring the world, you know, awareness of growth mindset into the world. This was in 2007. Her book had just come out and kind of very few people had heard of growth mindset before. And so when I read her book, I realized that I had gone in, into a lot of areas where I was more in a fixed mindset. I was trying to prove myself, thinking that you know I needed to show that I was talented and smart. And so I needed to pretend I was flawless, not make mistakes, react defensively when I received feedback. And how that was getting in the way of my goals. It was creating stress for myself. It was making life you know, less interesting, less fulfilling. And that in learning about her work and how the impact it had on me, that's how I became interested in partnering with her to, you know, bring these insights and strategies to to other people. And so we started a, an organization called Mindset Works together in 2007. And uh, later, it, it was not my plan to become a public speaker, but it became part of what the work was about of educating people. And surprising to me, I enjoyed it because I became I grew up very very introverted, but I enjoyed being a public speaker, getting better at it, having these interesting conversations with people, these insights. And that's, that's what led me to this work. How did you go from introvert to, to extrovert? Well, somewhat, right? Getting comfortable on stage. I think public speaking is like one of the number one fears that people have over something like arachnophobia, uh, which is kind of crazy. That's right. So I, I would have never thought that I would do public speaking. Growing up, I became very, very nervous speaking one-on-one -on -one with anybody, you know, my age or anybody else. And... As an entrepreneur, as a social entrepreneur, 
I was very comfortable in my office, you know, working on my computer and not going out. And so one of my board members came to me and said, hey, we're trying to, you know, educate the world about growth mindset. It's great what you're doing, but as part of this, people need to know who you are. You're the CEO of this, of this organization. So you have to get out of the office. You're in Silicon Valley. You need to network. People in, in, this, in this industry need to know who you are. And I said, Ellen, you know, I, I agree with you. I see this issue, but I really, we're really busy. We're bootstrapping this organization. I don't have time right now, but I, it's gonna, I'm going to keep it on my radar. And two months later, Carol Dweck was asked to do a TEDx talk, and she couldn't do it. So I, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to, okay, here's an opportunity to really get the message out to a lot of people potentially. I had read The Black Swan and I had and, and The Tipping Point. I had seen how there, there are some things that can really make a huge difference. And I thought that this TEDx talk could be that. And it was very scary for me to get on stage and talk, but it was only 10 minutes. And so I thought, okay, I could spend six weeks working really hard to get the script really solid, get a lot of feedback from Carol Dweck and my board members and friends, go through tons of iterations. At once, once I had the script, just practice incessantly videotaping myself, sharing my video with different friends to get their feedback. I remember I put pictures of people in front of me because I was very, very afraid of speaking in front of people. So I just put photos of crowds in front of me so I would become a little bit more comfortable with it. And that first TED Talk, I, as a strategy, I didn't look at people. I looked at the back wall and the lights because I thought that I would become too nervous if I spoke to people. But I had, I had memorized the script. I got up there. Surprising to me, because I was well prepared, I didn't get nervous. I was kind of breathing deeply and I was able to deliver. And that, that became a popular TEDx talk. It's being watched by over 4 million people. But after that, then people started asking, I didn't, I thought I was going to be done. Okay. I did this 10 minutes. I'm done. Now I can go back to my office. But then people started like reaching out to me to come speak to their organizations. And I really enjoyed, this was surprising to me. I enjoyed the creativity of learning about somebody's context and goals and designing an experience that would help them get from where they were to where they wanted to be. And the conversations that, that come from that, and so eventually that became my full-time job. And I, 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 after a decade leading Mindset Works, I transitioned to become a full-time public speaker. And I, I, I love it. And that was completely unexpected. But, but I see that to your point about exploration, I see it as developing my extroversion skills and continuing to develop my introversion skills. So as I have learned about people and about interactions with people, one thing that has led me to really enjoy conversations with people is to come with a sense of curiosity and asking questions and trying to like starting with the assumption because I used to I think a lot of us do this but I used to kind of think that I knew what was in other people's minds what their what their intentions were what they were thinking and what I realized is that I'm almost always wrong like if I just kind of test my assumptions if I ask questions then I discover so much about what people are thinking, what they're interested in, what their experiences have been. And that has made me curious to engage in conversations with people. And so now it's energizing to me. I, I like going to, you know, and, and meeting people and being with people. But I also really enjoy kind of my introversion skills. And I have continued to develop my mindfulness and my ability to be in solitude and to reflect. So I value both of those dimensions and I try to grow in both of them. Mm, I love that you use the word dimensions there because... 
you know, it, it's funny. People, you, you, you heard this tossed around. Hey, the world doesn't revolve around you. And at the end of the day, it actually kind of does when you break it down because your perspective is based on your whole life experience, your childhood, where you went to school, who you interacted with, your spouse, your friends, all of those things. And we uh, kind of forget that. And then to your point, make the assumption that we know what's in everybody else's head because we assume they've lived a similar life because it was through our lens. So we apply that thought process and that perspective to so many things in our life. And so many of us fall victim to that scenario. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a common systematic bias that there's a name to it. Psychologists call it the false consensus bias. We tend to think that other people think like us, and uh, we make that, that wrong assumption time and time again. The other thing that you said that was interesting is we were talking about introverts, extroverts. It's funny, a lot of entrepreneurs are actually introverts to begin with. Um, and a lot of their work has to do with networking and going out and public speaking and all those other things. But how fascinated are we as a human with these titles, right? Oh, you're an introvert, you're an extrovert, you're, you're smart, or I'm uneducated in this, I know this, or I don't know this, the titles and the signature of our emails, we are so addicted to these titles. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, these, these titles, these labels, they, they foster more of a fixed mindset, right? To your, to your earlier point of like thinking, okay, this person is stamped with this, whether it's in, introverted or extroverted, or, you know, I am this type. And that leads us to not develop, continue to develop ourselves, but to think that, assume that these things are things that are stamped in us and they don't change. That's, that's the definition of a, of a fixed mindset. And I think part of it is, you know, there's, there's these assessments that have been developed which historically have been framed as find out, you know, what type you are. And so people want to like find out about themselves. That makes them curious. And then once kind of they find out, then they, they label themselves. And, and it's, it's something that for some reason like makes people curious. But, but these assessments can be helpful to learn where we are at this point, what our tendencies are, what our preferences are, and get to know each other better. But I think that we shouldn't see them as kind of permanent stamped, you know, states. And, and I, I think to your point about dimensions, often kind of we see things like extroversion and introversion as two things that are, we're in, a, it's, a, it's a line and we are somewhere in that line, as opposed to there's two different dimensions that we can both develop both of them to get better. Mm, yeah, there, there's this thought process that it's either this or that, and that things can't live in parallel with each other, right? Democrat, Republican, like you have to be one or the other. And if you don't like this person, then you have to disagree with all of the things that they say or do. And it's like, well, hold on, I might not entirely agree with 100% of what they're saying. However, some of the things that they're saying, I do agree with, and that doesn't automatically disqualify that other person for being a bad person or a good person, but it's it's very much this, well, if you take this out of this bucket, then you can't have it in this bucket. It needs to go in this bucket. And that that separation is so imprinted in our minds from such a young age. Absolutely. And I think you get, you're getting to also, as uh, bio, biologically, we tend to think about groups and like, what, what group am I part of? What's my in-group? You're in my in-group or you're in my out-group. And, and so when we do things like 
you know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, who is in my team? Or, you know, in sports, like, you know, I am in this team and the other people are evil or like if, you know, <laughs> and, and so it's, and that's fine, it's fun, but but it, these, these labels definitely change our thinking. They prevent us from listening better to other perspectives and learning from those perspectives and to seeing people as individuals uh, who have complexity and who have things to to contribute and, and that we can learn from anybody regardless of kind of what, what group they're, they, they identify. I personally have always kind of registered as an independent because I don't want to get in the in this trap of thinking, you know, here's the, the team that I want to align with. And that makes me less able to, to think critically and to listen to other perspectives. It's ironic, isn't it? Because we think by giving yourself a title or saying you're with a team means you imprison yourself into a certain geographic spot within the world, metaphorically speaking. And to me, that's really scary. Because it's like you're building your own cell that you can actually reach into your pocket, grab the key and unlock. But a lot of people struggle with that. But to me, defining yourself as a group or a participant or a title, that seems scarier to me than having the flexibility, the latitude and longitude to kind of move about that your geographic location, as opposed to saying, this is my country, these are my walls, nobody comes in, anybody on the outside, I don't like, or I don't agree with their opinions. To me, that's a very dangerous mindset and a very limiting lifestyle. I, I agree with you. I relate with you. I can also kind of empathize with people who might feel the reverse. They might feel like if they don't align themselves with a team, they might not feel safe, right? Their team is their safety. They're going to be protecting them. And maybe there's the, I think in society, there's, there's a, especially in the West, there's a valuing of competition. There's this assumption that the way to succeed is to compete. And so you want to be part of a team that is going to compete against other teams and win, as opposed to collaboration, which is the opposite of competition, right? And I, I think that it is a great thing to think about and to think about, you know, where do we most feel safe? And is that working for us? Or is that also creating some unintended consequences? Mm, valid points. How do we then break out of this mentality of a fixed mindset and migrate into a growth mindset, especially because a lot of what we're talking about is really all of the influences that puts us into this category of a fixed mindset. So it becomes even more difficult as we age to then break into or evolve into, blossom into having a growth mindset. So how do we make that migration, that, that translation? For listeners who are not familiar with the term, so fixed mindset is the, the belief that people can't change. And a growth mindset is the belief that people can change, that our abilities and qualities are malleable. They're things that we can develop. And then lots of psychological implications follow from those things. And so we are specifically we specifically were thinking about kind of labeling people in groups. And I think a very effective way to come to see that people can change and that we can change when it comes to, for example, political polarization, which we were talking about, is to expose ourselves to different perspectives. So a, a different way, a, a specific way to do that might be to listen to some podcasts of like people who are respected individuals in, quote, the other camp, people who have different perspectives and listen, really listen to 
what what they what they're saying and what their perspectives are and think about why why might this person think this way what experiences have they had when my wife and I moved to a different part of the country like I made a point to listen to the the station that was a little bit kind of radical that looking thinking differently than I did just to kind of like listen to what people there listen to and and just try to understand people's lives here and what their experiences are and how things are framed what the stories are what the narratives are but for us like Mindset is not something that like we are either a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. It's not a binary thing, but it's more of a spectrum. And we all tend to be more in a fixed mindset about certain abilities or certain people and more in a growth mindset about other things. And so one, one first step is to for all of us to think about and try to become more aware about where we tend to be in a fixed mindset. What abilities do we tend to see as fixed? Like if we sometimes say, you know, this person is such a natural leader that that implies a fixed mindset of leadership, that the way the reason people are good leaders are because they're naturals or this person is such a natural athlete. You know, that would be like an indication of, of, a, of more of a fixed mindset at that point. And so the more we become self-aware about where our fixed mindsets are and we can think about, is this assumption true? Are people really set the way they are when it comes to this particular skill or quality? Or might I be wrong? Because when we tend to assume that people can't change, we don't do anything to change, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that self-awareness is an important first step. Another step is to think about what do I want to develop in myself? What skill do I want to develop? And what's an effective strategy and habit to develop that skill, which involves not just performing and getting things done, but leaping into what I call the learning zone. It's going beyond the known, doing things that may or may not work. And what is a habit that I can build in order to engage in that on a regular basis? And diving a little deeper into that, when we align with a vision or have these a bias or think about something differently and we try to, to your point, listen to something that might be a little more radical or outside of our comfort zone, how do we objectively digest that information because normally when we have such a fixed perspective on things, we seek information that further validates our belief in what we already have. And then normally, so we go out with great intentions and we say, okay, I'm fine. I'll look into this or I will try to be empathetic or I will try to see the other side. And then our fingers start typing actually what we're thinking and it's seeking out the information that again further validates our thought process so how do we break or throw in a different set of glasses that help us to objectively understand the other side yeah so one way might be to come with the intention of understanding why this person believes what they believe what is it in their experiences that have led them to the place where they are now from a place of empathy, right? Not that we need to agree with them, but just to, we need to understand what they believe and why they believe that. And so that is, that is from a learning orientation of trying to understand and getting the other person's shoes. I think that's something, because it, it, you're starting not with the assumption that you can disagree, that's okay, but like I can still learn about why. I don't know why you think what you think, so let me try to find out. A more radical approach that I like is I, I like to remind myself that I can never be 100% sure of anything, absolutely anything. 
And so I might like I, to take a complete like radical approach that I completely believe is I cannot be 100% sure that I exist. Like I, you know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you wake up from a dream and you realize that it was just a dream when it really felt so real. It felt 100% real. I've had that experience. And so I think it's possible that this conversation we're having right now, this experience we're having right now, is some sort of dream that we don't understand and that somehow it's not real. I mean, I, I just don't know. And so I can't be 100% sure that I exist. And if I can't be 100% sure that I exist, then I can't be 100% sure of anything else. That So if even if it's 99.99%, it, it helps me listen to other perspectives more and and ask more questions and consider that I might be wrong and, and find some truth because often there's truth in what other people are saying that I can learn from. Even if, you know, there, there's there's definitely truth in everybody's perspective that I can learn from, the more kind of we listen attentively and ask questions, the more we can discover that. The Motivated Mind is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever felt like your own brain was obstructing your progress? You know what you should do, what's in your best interest, but you struggle to follow through. Perhaps it's sticking to a habit, maintaining a routine, hitting the gym, or simply putting away electronics before bed. We've all experienced these moments trapped in a frustrating cycle where our own minds seem to conspire against us. The challenging part is that we're well aware of what we should be doing for our well-being, yet we can't seem to muster the willpower to act on it. This is where therapy can step in, helping us uncover the barriers holding us back and enabling us to work with ourselves rather than against ourselves. Therapy has helped me deconstruct these barriers and build doors to walk right through them, allowing me and my brain to work together. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MotivatedMind today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MotivatedMind. The spark of, of curiosity that sits there, right, to, to ignite this propellant to go into that, that realm. One of the things that I have found effective is a lot of us have a tendency, and I was, I've been guilty of this over time, where you will disagree with something. And so what you do is you take the weakest points of that defense and you regurgitate it. And so you say, oh, so what you're telling me, and you can hear it's sarcasm through and through. So you're like, already the other person is immediately going on the defense because they're frustrated that everything that they were telling you, whether they were being vulnerable, they were being open with you. And they were just simply sharing their opinion. And then you take all of the weakest points like you're a lawyer in a courtroom and decide to put bullet holes in it. And so I asked myself, what is the opposite of that behavior that we can do? Well, what if I took the strongest points that they had and said, so what I heard, boom, boom, boom. And then this way, the other person knows that I'm listening to them. And two, hopefully 
I've been able to explain it better than them, which means that I am empathizing and understanding where they're actually coming from, which then almost dilates your pupils where it's like, oh, okay, I'm actually receiving the information. Uh, it's not just bouncing off of me and the other person doesn't feel hurt at all. And so I found that to be an effective way too as well. That's great. I, I, I love that and, and, and I agree and I find that too. I, I also think that a lot of things are dual intentions, D-U-E-L. So there, there are two things that are true that are a bit like in opposition to each other. And we can hold them both to be true. Because I think in a lot of schools, we're taught to debate as if we were a lawyer, right? So like even when before the other person has shared their perspective, you know, when we're sharing our perspective, we just cherry, cherry pick the evidence that is going to support our point. And we don't talk about the evidence that is contrary to our point, even though we know that evidence is there. So even before the other person speaks, like we can talk about, hey, like, here's what I observe that on one hand, this on the other hand, this, this is what I think on balance. But but starting with the understanding that it's not just like one thing that we need to get to. Like there can be two truths that are in, in tension with each other and acknowledging that. Why do you think that's so prevalent in the education system? I mean, we all have our opinions are, uh, around it and again, put titles on it, good, bad, etc. Why do you think that if this discussion around mindset is the foundation for so many things in our lives, right? How come this is not taught in the education system? Well, you know, the education system at first was kind of designed for like the industrial revolution where the task was to just be a good worker and improve repetitive processes. And we're gradually transitioning from that more to like critical thinking in a, in a fast changing world. But it's still, we haven't gotten to it, schools needing to develop in children the skills and dispositions for lifelong learning so that, you know, they're pursuing their own interests, exploring, being creative based on what they're interested in, right? And, and, and that being the start of lifelong learning, not just that you learn in school what the skills and then you're prepared. And I think part of the reason for that is that some of these things are that are more valuable skills and dispositions are harder to assess in a test. And so it's, it's hard to to judge is what we're doing in a classroom working or not if we can't measure it. And so we end up teaching what is easy to measure rather than what's most important because these things are, are, are best assessed in a human interaction. Like if I'm speaking with people around me, I can see whether somebody has a learning disposition and are interested in, in growing and are you know, asking for other people's feedback. It's harder to do that in a test. So if we want to rely on tests, and, and tests are important and assessments are important, but we, we shouldn't lose sight of what's most important just because we, we need to focus on what's easiest to measure. So as we then get into society, into the real world, adulthood, what have you, how do we continually assess our progress when it comes to a growth mindset? What are some clear indicators to us? We, I know you touched upon some some earlier, but how do we ensure that we catch ourselves in the moment? Like, I love some of your posts on social media. I think it was when you were spilling something with yogurt, you broke a glass. There were so many things that for many of us, when those things happen, it's a knee-jerk reaction into our behavior that's been built for so long. And so it, became, it becomes very challenging to see it think it, 
understand what it means in that moment and then take a different route on the normal path, right? So how, how do we identify those things and assess this through time? Well, one way to assess ourselves is to each of us ask ourselves, what am I working to improve in myself right now? What, how am I working to develop myself? And if we can't come up with an answer of here's, here's what I'm working to improve in myself, then we can do a better job at driving our own growth. Uh, so just being clear that at any point in time, there's at least one skill or quality that I'm working to improve in myself and being clear about how I'm going about that. So I like to every morning remind myself of what am I working to improve and how and, and then that, that reminder becomes easy and automatic because I do it every morning. Uh, and then it primes the growth mindset, it primes the learning zone, and, and it, makes, it makes it easier and easier to think in this way throughout the day. And then we can catch ourselves more. Like if somebody gives us feedback and we respond defensively, that might be our immediate emotional reaction. But then we are able to observe that, us reacting in that way, and then pausing and then cognitively kind of saying, okay, I have reflected on this. I realize that I tend to react defensively to feedback. So my intention is when I receive feedback, just to listen and to thank the person or ask a follow-up question to learn more. And then once we have, we're clear on what our intention is, how we want to respond, then we can take a moment to go from the emotional immediate reaction to the cognitive behavior that we want. And the more we do that, the more our kind of neurons fire together, they wire together, we start thinking differently, and then we start having a different emotional response. So I think it involves kind of like regular reflection, like whether it's once a week or once a month or once a quarter, like thinking about how am I doing in my own growth and what can I tweak, what can I continue to change in, in my learning habits in order to get better at it. So I think uh, we, we are good, like we can assess ourselves. We can also ask other people for feedback, right? Like, hey, here's how I want to behave. I would love your support along the way. I would love your feedback along the way. Uh, so let me, you know, check in with you every once in a while and say like, am I soliciting feedback regularly? Am I reacting defensively to feedback so that we get other people's perspectives as well uh, to help us assess? I love that. I love that. And I have a monthly calendar reminder where I ask other people, seven of my closest individuals, you know, what could I improve? What did you see this month? And I do actually upward reviews with my team members as well. I always found it perplexing that I'm like, wait a minute, you know, there's monthly or quarterly reviews, but it doesn't go the other way for a lot of organizations. A lot do, but a lot don't too as well. And I always found that very confusing because it's like, well, they're observing me, my behaviors or lack thereof or lack of empathy or direction or whatever. It's probably a good opportunity to get some of their feedback and their perspective because I guarantee I'm probably missing it just because I'm go, go, go sometimes. And I have found that to be one of the most beneficial things is your inner circle. You were talking about your board of directors earlier. I think this is a great idea for anybody in their in their personal life. Every individual should have a board of directors, people that you can bounce ideas off of, that have a context to your life, that understand what you're struggling with, and that can actually help shine a light on those blind spots. I mean, they're called blind spots for a reason because we don't know they actually exist. So I think having multiple flashlights in the room can be such a beneficial thing for all of us. Absolutely. And as a leader, you know, you are 
trying to influence your team and have an effect on them. So getting information back from them is so useful. Like you said, it's, been, it's so useful to you. But another benefit of it is that you're modeling the behaviors that is going to make the team stronger. Like if sometimes as leaders, we we engage in learning in private when other people aren't watching. Like we might do it with our board of directors, but we might not solicit feedback to our team. And so then they might see us as a know-it-all, you know, as, and, and so they might, the impression that, that they get is in this organization, the, the people with highest status are those who now know, who don't need to learn anymore. And they emulate those behaviors because they want to have high status. So it becomes an, a know-it-all culture. So as leaders, it's so important to do what you do of soliciting feedback and also explaining why, you know, setting the stage. Feedback is something that even the best people in the world continue to use all the time to get even better. That's what we all want to be doing and modeling the way as a leader. Hmm. One of the things I observed is, so we just had our first child back in February. and uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Parenting, it's, it's really funny. Once you become a parent, you realize, oh, wow, our parents didn't know anything. They just pretended the entire time that they knew what they were doing and did a really good job, I guess, presenting it, fake it, whatever you want to call it. And you start to realize that all of us that exist on this planet don't actually have anything figured out. And that's not a bad thing. That's a really freeing, exciting thing because it means that there's so much to learn. And I think going into every event, situation, conversation with this kind of novice mentality allows you to remove the biggest enemy in the world. And you touched on this a couple of times thus far is the ego. Because once the ego comes into the room, it's like, well, I'm not receptive to learning anything. And then, oh, I'm a leader in this company. I already know everything. Look at, I'm already in this position. And then the growth, the curiosity or the novice mentality leading up to you getting into that position, that was the whole reason you got into that position. So if you stop doing that and change that, then what does that do to further progress? And I always found an interesting irony with that. I agree. And I think I think what you're saying to me is it points to this orientation of embedding learning into our lives we we want to perform performing is important too that's how we get things done but we want to do it while learning it not only gets us to better results and better achieving our goals but it makes the process so much better right it makes life a lot more joyful and fulfilling it, it leads to less anxiety and depression research shows that because whenever we struggle or we make mistakes they're not a permanent reflection of us we can learn from those things and so we're less anxious along the way and it deepens our relationships because we can ask more questions listen better get to know each other better self-disclose more like be more transparent and sharing my thinking and my emotions with you and and the reverse so we get to know each other better and more deeply which deepens relationships yeah. Who wants to interact with someone that is a know-it-all <laughs> exactly. every single time that isn't interested in the conversation and wants to take a deeper dialogue into things when someone is normally vulnerable with us? You know, I've brought on many guests where I've told my backstory of my parents getting a divorce where I was really young and how that affected me and my best friend committing suicide and all of those things. Then it drops the guard of other people to say, oh, I'm registering that they're okay with these types of conversations and they're going out on a limb being vulnerable with me. And so I now know that this is a safe, comfortable place where I can therefore express my vulnerabilities or some of these things where I don't talk to other people about. And I find that to be some of the most fascinating interactions that you have with people to your point that 
they become fun. They become enjoyable. And we're only on this planet for so long. And a big part of that should be to have fun, right? Absolutely. And and when we do that with strangers, like if you're interviewing somebody for your podcast, it does feel at the beginning, it might feel to some people more than others, that that disclosure is vulnerable in the sense that Oh, other people might think less of me if I share this part of myself. And so I'm taking a risk by being transparent. But in our teams or in our families with the people that we interact with on a regular basis, we can be vulnerable like that at the beginning and reciprocate so that we're sharing and we, we learn that these are types of conversations that enrich our work and our life, they enrich our relationships, and they're safe. And then we can be transparent without feeling vulnerable. You know, I can share parts of myself without feeling like you're going to think less of me or, or there's going to be negative repercussions. And so, you know, vulnerability is something that we need to, you know, whether, whether we feel vulnerable or not, the transparency of me self-disclosing has a lot of benefits. And over time, you know, it feels safer to do that because we have, you know, norms and understanding about what, what, what kind of relationship and interactions we want. And I also think it's, it's become a little more challenging for people to open up because of this highlight reels that we constantly see on social media or that we're bombarded with. Because it's like, oh, wow, man, because this is happening in my life, that must mean that I'm not, we were just talking about groups earlier, I'm not part of this group, right? I I am not successful, right? I do not have the capabilities. A lot of those fixed mindset dialogue being constantly, you know, rubbed over our eyes and ears and our mind every single time. And it becomes very difficult, therefore, to transition outside or expand that vision, right? Because we are just, it's the screen that's in front of us almost constantly. Yeah, and it's such a, like your, to your point, it's such a biased uh, set of information that we're seeing only at a little slice of somebody else's life. But I think something that is helping you see that is you understand how social media is just showing a narrow slice of people. The things that draw the most attention are the things that are magnified because the, the media companies need clicks in order to make revenues. And so this system thinking is was one of the five dimensions of kind of a learning organization that uh, Peter Senge first identified in the five disciplines, uh, a book he wrote in the 80s. And the more curious we are about how things work, the more that we can see how things fit together, how systems work and how we are part of those systems. And then we can have insights like you, like you just voiced of, you know, this is how this particular biased interaction that we have with media, with social media, can impact our psychology and, and our lives. Another kind of way that I think media or social media impacts us is that it tends to also magnify the really negative things and the really kind of radical things. And so I like to start every morning. The first thing I do is I express gratitude for the things that I deem most important, which are life, love, health, and peace. Like what parts of that are in my life and what parts of that are in the world? Because the rest of the, the time, if I check the news or social media or like what gets magnified are the negative things, the things that are lacking of those. And so we need to build habits to overcome that and to put things in perspective, because otherwise, if we just live life reactively, we're going to be victims of this, this biased ways that things work. 
Yeah, we become the passenger in this car driving 80 miles per hour down the highway, and we're not touching the brakes, the gas, the steering wheel. That's really nerve wracking. And you're so right. A lot of what we see is negativity. I I think of us as, um, or myself, I guess, I can't speak for others, but as a giant computer that every single day has the opportunity to get different programming, right? And that programming comes in the form of, your environment, who you're around, who is your spouse, where you live, what you interact with and who you interact with online, what you watch or consume for entertainment. And it's so easy for all of us to get, I would say, bad coding within our program that doesn't actually help our objectives, our goals in life. And then that programming, whether it be a small subset ends up disrupting all of our programming, just like a virus in a computer. So the thought process, at least for me every day, is what type of programming do I want today? And is it going to help my intentions and my goals and my happiness and my peace and my relationship? And if it's not, then why would I even bother? I have spent so many years cleaning up my social media feed or the people online that I interact with to the people I hang around with, even to family members, which I know is even harder for a lot of people because of that understanding that the coding is really important every single day and the viruses we want to keep them out as much as possible yeah that really resonates and and you know biologically we have a tendency to do the things that are going to lead to survival like we're not really biologically built to thrive or to or to build happiness we are we are wired to survive and so for example threads like threats, like a lion, like they have a big impact on us, much more than a rainbow or a strawberry, uh, because that's what helps us survive. But now, you know, there's there's so many things that are perceived as threats, you know, that we have so much information in front of us that we then get overwhelmed by these kind of negative uh, threats, even if they're a lot smaller, they seem like very, very large. And so for, for those reasons, like you said, we need to be proactive about how we program ourselves, what habits we build, how we want to think to overcome this, this tendency in combination with how the world has evolved. Yeah, and it, and it comes down to, to also the separation in the programming because one of the things I think a lot of us fall trapped to is not creating white space because we live in such an overstimulated world now. It's really easy to get into the next article or click the next thing or have 75 tabs open. We've, we're all guilty of it. But then that dilutes our inner thinking, our inner being, our ability to hear ourselves or to think creatively and it becomes very difficult to sift through all that noise and actually listen to the the core of what you want or who you want to become or any of those things when we're, we're more so blocked out by all of this noise. It's like listening to, I don't know any heavy metal bands, but in your ears every single day and then trying to paint something beautiful, it would probably be a little challenging. And so creating that degree of separation, I, I think is really important too, to, to actually listen to those thoughts that the inner side of who we are. I agree. Two, two ways I'd like to do that. One is, like you said, that you've been deliberately cleaning cleaning out your social feed or like what your connections are. One thing similar that I do is if I get a notification on my phone, like the first thing I think about is, 
do I want to change the setting so that I don't get a notification like this ever again, right? And so cleaning out what pings me so that I get less pinged. And then in my computer, I have like three virtual desktops. Uh, so there's just one computer, but you can kind of, through, through the touch of a key, you can switch kind of from one computer to the other. And in the one that I'm working on, I only have one thing open, right? And in the other ones, I have other things, but that keeps things like really decluttered and I can just focus on what the one thing that I want to focus on. Mm. You've created so much power in your pause, right? That that's That's what I'm hearing right there is that you have the ability to pause before the follow-up action. We're so quick to click the mouse, hit the button, do this, click on this notification, and you're registering, well, hold on a second. What, you're being very intentional with your pauses, and there's so much power that comes off of from that. Yeah, it's like thinking about what habits we want to build, how what systems we want to build around us so that we, we can kind of behave the way we want to behave. Mm. Eduardo, this has been phenomenal. I appreciate you you jumping on. Where can people follow you? You've got a wonderful website and you also have on your website, you got both of those TED Talks that you mentioned earlier with like 5 million views. I watched both of them. They were great, by the way. I could not tell you were nervous about going up on stage. And where can people find your upcoming book, Performance Paradox? Yeah, so my, my website is brusenio.com. It's my, my last name. And my book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action, is available wherever books are sold. Awesome. Eduardo, I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into shifting our mindset spectrum with Eduardo Bersino. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all. And thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.